When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. this episode of the show we're talking about everybody's favorite subject maybe patterning your shotgun with del whitman thanks for tuning in to episode number 177 Back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. We've got a good one for you today. Coming up shortly with Dell Whitman. I'm going to see how fast I can get through this intro. Quick turnaround after our last episode from last week. Hope you enjoyed that one. I am getting ahead in my recordings, and I'm going to keep these things coming for you. So we've got a few good ones lined up today. We're talking to Dell Whitman about, yes, patterning your shotgun. Coming up shortly. First, thank you to Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast. You'll remember this month we have available for the Patreon monthly giveaway a little gift pack from Onyx Hunt, an elite subscription card, some items from Yukonuba, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, and another edition, the good folks at Shooting Sportsman accidentally or perhaps intentionally, I'm not sure, but they sent me two copies of my Shooting Sportsman magazine this month, which happens to be one of my favorite when it comes to shotguns 
bird hunting, all of the things that we are very likely to talk about on this podcast. If you listen to this podcast, I suspect that you probably would very much enjoy Shooting Sportsman magazine. So if you've never checked that out, please do. Definitely worth the read. I look forward to that every time I get a new issue. And as I mentioned, I got two copies this month. So I figure I will drop one into the gift basket for a lucky Patreon winner. So that is the June giveaway, which will be announced in early July. And I also mentioned last week, all Patreon supporters of the Birdshot Podcast are now eligible for a discount on Gumleaf boots, which you can find at gumleafusa.com. If you are interested in a pair of those boots, you can contact Jack directly or reach out to me and I will get you set up with that discount code. Sign up for as little as five bucks a month, patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Okay, we got a longer episode today, so let's get into it. Patterning your shotgun with Dell Whitman, something we should all do more of and probably will never do enough of. Well, Dell has done a bunch of it. And this interview slash conversation that I had with Dell on today's show was in an effort to continue some of the conversations I have had on recent episodes, most notably with Levi Day, where we got into shotgun patterning and shot shell ballistics, that sort of thing. And both of us really had a lot of questions and very few answers. So naturally that led me to tap into my network of contacts and want to talk to somebody that had much more expertise and experience in actually patterning and testing shot shell cartridges and could provide some more in-depth insight and potentially answer some of the questions that Levi and I brought up on that episode. So the beginning of this show, Dell and I are catching up a little bit, talking about our hunting seasons and that sort of thing. And then the second half of it, we dive into shotgunning stuff. And as I re-listened through the edit, I realized just how much ground we covered. Of course, we don't cover everything. It's just, it's too wide and deep of a topic to do so. But there is a lot of quality information in this conversation that Dell shared. And based on knowing my audience to the extent that I do and the feedback that I get on certain episodes, I think that it is very likely you will both find this episode enjoyable and probably learn something or walk away with a different perspective on some things related to shotgunning, patterning, and shot shell ballistics. It was a good one, as always, to be expected when we have Dell Whitman on the show. And we are going to jump into that momentarily, but I nearly forgot to mention that Upland Gun Company and the Birdshot Podcast are doing another gun fitting giveaway for all listeners of the Birdshot Podcast, similar to the one we did with Lars Jacob. If you heard that episode earlier this year, this will be conducted in a very similar fashion. Anybody willing to go to see Dell at his shop near Traverse City, Michigan can be eligible to win. All you have to do is send me an email with subject line gun fitting or get fit or something like that to nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Let me know you're interested in doing a gun fitting with Dell Whitman. And I will run this for 30 days. In the episode, I say something about the end of the June. We're going to run it from 30 days of the date of the, that this episode is published. And then after that 30 days, I will draw a winner, notify them, announce it on the show. And Upland Gun Company will be sending somebody to do a gun fitting with Dell Whitman, which I have done personally and can attest that through my gun fitting with Dell Whitman, I learned probably more about my shooting and tendencies, which led to me actually improving my techniques and shooting, getting a gun that fit me better. And not only that, but I have a much better understanding of what was going wrong prior and what I needed out of a gun slash gun stock to help me shoot better 
more naturally, more instinctively. So a very worthwhile experience, whether or not you decide to go get a gun with a custom stock or makes alterations to a gun that you currently have, the experience of shooting the patterning plate with someone like Dell is more than worth the time and potential cost you invest in that fitting. So email me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. And with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast of DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing, Dell Whitman. All right, we are rolling on the Birdshot Podcast. Welcome back to the show, man. Thank you. Glad to be here. Your first time on the Birdshot Podcast. You've been on the on the podcast many times, but first time since uh, since we became the Birdshot Podcast. Always good to have you back on the show. How's uh, how is spring treating you, Del Whitman? So far, how's the garden doing? Where where are you at? Good, good. I've, I I don't have anything in the ground yet. We have some really kind of freakish late frosts here, but all my plants are started in my little greenhouse. So I'll be putting in the bulk of my garden this weekend, and uh, it's it's been a busy spring, but busy in a good way. Yeah. Um, you know, I was out for a better part of a week to Pine Ridge for gun fittings for Upland Gun Company, and then I just, this last weekend, I was at Drot Fest mm. um, here in Michigan, and uh, I know they had a couple guns that they uh, gave away from Upland Gun Company, and that was a, I did a two-hour uh, kind of presentation lecture for all the members there one morning I was one of the presenters and that was that was really an interesting kind of eye-opening experience for me so was that the was that the first time you had done like a sort of that live seminar no I I've done presentations like that before it was more of I guess I didn't really understand the Drothar Owners Association you know the the vdd gna gna yeah and and i guess really just the lengths that those guys go to to you know maintain the integrity of that breed it's it was even it was you know knowing germans and and kind of that mentality it was shocking even to me you know how (laughs) the lengths and the passion they have for that and um it was just very interesting so no, that's cool. I I know I learned a, a fair bit more about it than I did than I had known prior to my inter- interview with Lyndon Roller, who you connected me with, you know, a while back. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I ch- was chatting with him a little bit about the event. He said it was a was a smashing success and and a good time had by all. Sounds like sounds like you enjoyed yourself there. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, it was a great time. So, yeah, it was, it was fun to, fun to connect at Pine Ridge. You know, I, you've been out there a couple of times now. I, when we got you out there the first time, I wasn't sure if we'd, we'd get you back, but you've been there like three times now uh, the last year. <laughs> yeah. It's uh they're, they're fun. I, I enjoy doing it. It's a little grueling, but you yeah. know, we're trying to, we're trying to fit in as, as many as we can and get, get enough, you know, get as many sets of dimensions as we can. And, um, that's what I'm there to do. So. Yeah, and to be fair, you yeah. are a you're a former Minnesota guy, and you you don't need too much of an excuse to come back and spend a little time here, right? No, no, and and you know when I yeah when I was a kid, I I staffed at a um, Boy Scout camp that's over by Park Rapids, so I've got friends there that are only you know forty five minutes from camp, and then or you know from one camp to the other camp, and then um, you know my parents live in southern Minnesota, so I went down saw them for a few days and yeah it's kind of a kind of a nice little trip to come over there and take care of all that in one shot so so between all the events and 
and everything else. Uh, I don't even know. I, I know you and I have chatted about this a little bit, but do you do you find yourself out turkey hunting every spring, or is that something you do occasionally, or not at all? Well, I I used to turkey hunt every year um, for many years here in Michigan. A good friend of mine had a had a lease down um, kind of in the south central part of the state, north of Lansing. And we always had a good time doing that. Um, and I, I hunted up here. Oh, whenever, whenever I wasn't going to go downstate, I hunted up here and, mm-hmm. and usually had a lot of success and had a lot of fun. I love turkey hunting. But then a few years back, I started going to the southern side-by-side shoot, and that fell right on top of the um, lottery early season tags. Michigan's got a system where there's, there's several um, – you know, four or five day periods, I believe three of them. It's been a few years since I've applied, but there's three of those that happen, you know, towards the end of April. And then once you get into May, they, it's basically almost a month long, just general season. Okay. Um, so yeah. It, it, so once I started going to the Southern, it kind of, I, I, I stopped applying for that, uh, those early seasons. And that was, you know, really when, when the hunting was the best and, the most effective because because the birds were you know strutting and yeah you could call them in and have a great time but i you know now i'm so busy traveling in in the spring um i i don't i think it's been a three years since i've turkey hunted um four years now but yeah i mean i don't know i i, I tell tell people my opinion is if you've got if you've got turkeys that are working it's one of the most fun and exciting things you'll yeah. ever do yeah it's like it's like all the best parts of deer hunting and all the best parts of duck hunting kind of wrapped into one scenario. Yeah, that's not a not a bad analogy. Yeah. I know I'm I'm definitely sort of in the you could probably say I'm in the honeymoon phase of turkey hunting, just sort of getting my feet wet and I've had some success now and I I just I killed my Minnesota bird last weekend, which was the first one I I was out by myself and called all the shots and, you know, made made my mistakes but made some of the right moves and and ended up getting a bird so it's it's uh it's like a new fascination of mine which is it's it's a fun thing to do this time of year what little i know about you know i've been over to your place a couple times i haven't really been out hunting or spent a whole lot of time on the landscape but i mean just like basic eye test i mean like do you not have turkeys like right behind like right around your house there yeah there there are turkeys yeah there are turkeys up here in you know benzie county and Lelon and Grand Traverse County, you know, there's quite a few of them. The up up here, the populations will fluctuate a little bit depending on how much snow we get. Yeah. Um, especially especially out by me because we can get, you know, some years we can get such massive quantities of snow that it that it hampers them a little bit. But, you know, there's there's good hunting here. And then, you know, like I said, downstate where I used to go for many years, that was that was that was really good hunting. Yeah. So. But things change, you know, my, the guy that I went hunting with, he got a little older and the, uh, you know, the, the family sold the farm. He had the lease on, so that kind of passed on and, you know, he still hunts down there and I'll, I'm sure sometime between now and whenever I'll get down and hunt with him there again. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I like to too. I, I'm, I'm really trying to concentrate. I'm already, you know, I'm always thinking about fall. So mm-hmm. every, every minute I'm not turkey hunting now i'll be hunting grouse and woodcock and you know birds <laughs> out west hopefully so yeah yeah that's cool it's interesting you mentioned the you know the fluctuating snow levels and and turkey populations that's something i'm really interested in now i'm trying to i'm in the process of working on maybe getting a a guest on the show even though it's kind of like past the p 
peak of turkey hunting interest, but I'm just, I, I got a bunch of questions now after my season and I'm just curious about how people more in tune with the world of turkeys and turkey biology, how they think about snow and, and everything. Cause obviously where you are and where I am, it's not traditionally thought of as great turkey country, but clearly we've, we've got them in there. And I mean, this last winter, it was very cold. I mean, I would say, and maybe, maybe if I looked at the historical temperatures, I think it was, I think it was relatively a cold winter with a lot of snow. So you would think not great for turkeys, but obviously they're, it's not going to wipe them all out, but it's just interesting. I don't, I don't know exactly like what plays into that relationship and the fluctuation. I just, I'm kind of curious about learning more about it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of hunting season, uh, love to get a little brief recap of, of maybe some of your adventures last fall. How did, how was rough grouse and woodcock hunting for you last fall? And then I think you made a trip or two that I like to chat about. Yeah. You know, it was, it was kind of interesting. I, I had a great season. I hunted more than I have in quite a long time. Um, I did Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, both the upper and lower Michigan. Hmm. It was a little chaotic. I, I had a trip plan to Montana for the end of September and between some of the, the, the guy I was going to go with ended up having some commitments that he couldn't get out of. And we were conscious of the drought they had were, you know, that severe drought they were having a little bit. So, yep. you know, your, your season always has a couple fulcrum hunts, you know, and that was the big one for me. And when that one, when that one went away, everything else kind of came loose along with it. And I ended up doing a lot of uh, just kind of a lot of running around that, had had there been a little bit better planning up front, pro- I probably would have been a little bit more efficient. Um, so there's that. But yeah, I had I had a really good, really good season. Had a lot of fun. It was it was a good time. Yeah, I don't know how much time you spent hunting grouse and woodcock in areas outside of like your home turf. But you know, sometimes you only get a few days on the ground in one place, and it's hard to it's hard to really judge a season based on that. But did you notice any? any differences in like in bird numbers or anything in, in some of your traveling hunting? Yeah. You know, um, Minnesota, I was kind of going on what I hadn't hunted there for a few years prior. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers were, were pretty darn good there. Both the UP and down where I'm at here, I would say, I mean, I, I would put it like this. The numbers were markably better than they have been for, and especially down here in the lower, in my area, the numbers were better than they have been for quite a while. I noticed a definite upswing, but still didn't put it into the category where I would have called it great, uh, yeah. great numbers, especially locally here, you know, by where I live there, they've been, so the numbers have been low for quite a while. And I just, I'm hoping that, you know, last year and this little bit of milder winter that we had will, will set us up for some better numbers. I'm, I'm hearing plenty of drumming right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause I go, I, I mushroom on quite a bit in the spring and, I always kind of gauge, keep my own little personal mental drumming count, and that's seeming very favorable. So I'm always hopeful that this is the year that's gonna gonna kind of kick over into an uptick. Right. So yeah, but time will tell. But yeah, Minnesota, Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, the UP. There were it was it was all very acceptable. I had I had a number of very good days in all those zones. So yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I know it was a, I, I would say generally, generally good season. I, I probably talked about it a lot last fall. I had, I saw some inconsistencies in, in different areas, but that's to be expected. But generally speaking, it was good. And then I've been sort of 
highlighting, you know, at least backyard observation, it, it seemed to be a, a here. I mean, you mentioned a milder winter being a little bit better for the birds there. That's kind of interesting because here, I think it was a good grouse winter based on it being consistently cold and having a lot of good roosting snow. And I know you and I talked about this a little bit not long ago about sort of the things that you're looking for, but I was in my turkey hunting, I was only out in the woods five days and I was in areas to be fair that were, I wouldn't call, I mean, some, the, the area I spent the most time in was not good, not prime grouse habitat. And I didn't hear a lot of drumming in there. I heard a little bit one morning, my buddy and I, my buddy and I set up right at sunrise and, and we heard a grouse start drumming and I, I would have been shocked if he was more than about 20 yards away. <laughs> then I, and I think nice. he, I think he took off, but that was, that was cool to hear. It's, that's one of the neat things about being out in the spring woods is that drumming. And I, I, I just, I didn't feel like I heard as much as I was expecting to, but I've also heard, I've heard some, some positive reports from others that uh, people have been hearing a lot of drumming and it's one of those things yeah. where it's pretty, it's pretty noticeable when you're out there. So I think, I think a lot of people tend to notice the drumming and, there's always some if you're in you're in good habitat areas, but as far as your winter goes, it was it was a little bit more mild. You did you didn't have deep snow, but you would not necessarily look at that as a bad thing. Yeah, no, no, and see, and and I should really be specific when I say Michigan, you know, because I'm in the upper lower. Yeah, and you know, northern, you know, the UP is the dynamics there I think are going to be a lot more similar to Northern Wisconsin or Northern Minnesota, mm-hmm. right. With, with light, fluffy, super cold temperatures that they can snow roost in, like that's going to be really beneficial to them down here, especially with, you know, the kind of the tri-county area that I hunt, we're in such close proximity to Lake Michigan and also the Grand Traverse Bays. And, you know, our temperatures are moderated a lot more. So we tend, we can tend to get a lot of snow but it's it it's usually not that light fluffy stuff that they can roost in and it and you know we go through cycles where we'll get a large amount of snow we can have two two and a half three feet on the ground we'll go through a week where we've got temperatures in the high 30s and maybe a little bit of sleet and even sometimes some rain that all compresses then we'll have another little cold snap the snow will build up again and you know that's not ideal yeah. for grouse um that kind of that that cyclic you know wetter heavier snow so if we have a little milder winter down here for for this little microclimate i think that's better yeah you look favorably upon that do you get do you get a lot of sub-zero temperatures there we really don't we're i mean it's again it's not like it's not like northern minnesota you know we're 20s you know if if it's you know it's specifically where i'm at i'm only about 10 miles from the lake michigan shore and i'm about 10 miles from the base of the Grand Travers days, you know, if we're in the teens, that's pretty cold. Yeah. Like that's, that's real cold for us here. Yeah. I, that, I, so. That's a significant difference, obviously between that area and, and this area. Cause yeah, that's, I think it's in the Gordon Gullion book. He talks a lot about when he goes in depth about grouse and snow roosting, you know, we could have, you know, we could be 30, 40 below here, which is very cold, but it's not, definitely not uncommon. And I think he talks about if you've got good roosting snow, which is, you know, a couple feet or so, it, it very rarely, if ever gets below like 20 degrees Fahrenheit under that, under that snow. And that's, that can keep, a, oh, yeah. can keep a grouse's body temperature up to the point where they're not getting stressed to the point of, you know, perishing, obviously. So if you're, if your temps are kind of up around that area, it's, it's probably, 
not nearly as as stressful on them as 30 40 below yeah and then you know if, if the further you go inland too the further you get towards the you know if you want to think the same north to south zone that i'm in but as you go further inland the temperatures get get colder and more yep. consistently cold yeah but you know having, having lake michigan and the bays where they are it it moderates everything quite a bit it's really so. interesting i mean living i li- live on obviously lake superior and, and living on a great lake you get you get very accustomed to the odd weather patterns but it's amazing how how big of an effect that i mean it's not surprising just given the size of the body of water that they would kind of create their own microclimates but you know the spring spring effect and the fall effect and and lack of snow or more snow and you go inland and the temperatures fluctuate a lot more i mean yeah all those same patterns i'm usually paying attention to around here and using using a lot of them to my advantage in in the fall i've learned how to work around that stuff when it comes to the changing of the seasons but yeah they those lakes play a big role in in the climate around here mm-hmm. did you go on a, a prairie chicken hunt last year yeah i did uh my friend uh brandon smith and i went out and we hunted and we went out quite late we went out um over thanksgiving and uh it was a great time it was one of the better hunts i've been on really um you know that i i shouldn't you know it was one of those things where the birds that time of year both the chickens and the sharpies are very flocked up mm-hmm. um you know and they're very wary they, they they've been worked on for a while and um you know so we we saw quite a lot of birds you know we did not get a lot of shooting in we we did we did get some birds and had a wonderful time but we you know it was one of those things where we knew that's how it was going to be going in yep so we weren't we weren't at all disappointed and you know we didn't see any other hunters and the weather that time of year can be really uh, variable mm-hmm. and for the you know for the three days i was on the ground it was just absolutely wonderful you know light light winds were out there it was nice and sunny cold enough that the dogs could could stay at it for most of the day and yeah just just had a really nice time sounds like no snow on the ground when you were there nope yeah. nope it was there was there was no now i now i believe brandon stuck around for a couple more days and i think after i left the weather turned and it there were a couple days where it was really windy and like down in the teens and i'm not i'm not sure there might have been one day i'm not sure if he even hunted so yeah but yeah yeah good time that's definitely sort of my what i've heard about about hunting that that time of year certainly you expect you expect the bird behavior to be a little bit different than it would be in september but obviously pros and cons of it all you're hoping you know if you get good weather it tends to be really really nice because you've got like you said it's it's cool the dogs can run you can cover ground and you have you have good conditions out there obviously you could but then you could have a blizzard or wind or whatever you know you're taking a little (laughs) taking a little risk planning a trip like that but when it all lines up yeah i i gotta i'm kind of hopeful to get to work in a few more later season trips to some different areas because as as you well know being a rough grouse and woodcock hunter, like you never know what we're going to have around here or around where you're at, at that time of year either. So to get out and, and yeah. find good conditions like that, what, how did your, how did your dogs do out there covering the big country? Good. You know, well, my, my cocker of course is not really designed for that, but <laughs> he, you know, he was, he did his normal thing, you know, ran his kind of big, big oval C pattern loops and mm-hmm. he'd get out, he'd stretch out a little bit further. Um, my Brittany opened up quite a bit. I mean, he was right out there with, with the short hairs. You know, I'm still, you know, he was only two. At, that, that was only his, you know, second full season. So uh, there were still some some training issues that I was working out with him. 
and uh, blah, 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 as, as it always is with young dogs. But overall, I think they work pretty good this year. I've got a lot better handle on, I, I, you know, I got back from that last year and, and worked with Floyd's my French Brittany. And I worked with him quite a lot before the snow got on the ground. And then as soon as the snow came off the ground, I went right back to it and we've made some real progress. So I'm really hopeful about um, where he's at. He's, he's actually, I think in really pretty good shape for this year. Yeah. So that's, I'm happy about that, but he's, he's a, he's a kind of an atypical Brittany, you know, when I got him initially, I got, I got, a, I got a French brick cause I thought they were going to, he was going to, you know, be a really close working, more methodic dog. And he's not, he, he runs about like the short hairs I've had in the past, um, which, you know, I guess I don't mind at this point because I'm, I'm getting around pretty good right now. And if he's out there a little further, that's fine with me, you know, obviously as long as he's out there. And, and I mean, the thing, the, the reason I'm a little bit you know, more okay with that is he's actually out there working. Yeah. You know, he's, he's not just out there running off or running around or creating mischief. He's, he's actually out there hunting and trying to work birds and, and that's okay. I, I just, I kind of think dogs a lot of times have a natural range they want to be at and Mm -hmm. you can, you can really twist yourself in knots trying to alter that where, you know, maybe, maybe it's better to make sure they're under control at the range they want to be and just kind of, kind of go with it from there yeah and i think the the amount that they like their cooperation level or or the amount it feels like they're hunting with you checking in you know would be one thing like if they're doing that a lot then i tend to i guess my dogs do that so i just tend to i don't really think about their range at all you know every once in a while i'll look down at the gps and for me in the in the woods i'm kind of like like if they're beyond 150 that's usually when i'm sort of hitting the i i'll hit the vibrate on my collar just to kind of like, Hey, time to, time to swing back. And they're, you know, you work on that slowly and they kind of, they get the message at, at that point. And then they sort of come in and check in. And once they swing in and check in then they keep working and then the, you've sort of corrected their range, but you didn't really have to do all that much. You just sort of asked for a check. Yeah. Yeah. He's 50 to 80, yeah. you know, somewhere like that. Sometimes he'll, he'll go slightly further than that, but, but yeah, he's checking in. He's got a, you know, even going into last year, I had a really good recall on him, and he's he was pointing well, you know, holding points, just overall pretty responsive. I, I had some issues getting a good remote woe in him, mm. and that's that's really what what I was working on late last fall and this spring, and we've made a lot of progress on that. I'm I'm really happy. I just I let, that's kind of a a non negotiable training aspect for me is you know wherever that dog is, if I give him the command, he's got to stop, Yeah, you know, and he's, and he's got to stop until I release him. And, and that was, you know, having trained short hairs in the past. And then, you know, Bill, my cocker was incredibly easy to train. Floyd was a little more problematic. And I, I've got a good handle on it. And, you know, thanks to some of the advice that uh, Brandon, my friend Brandon Smith gave me, he does some semi-pro dog training and kind of helped me sort out some of the method with that. And yeah. it, it's really been really been beneficial and it's nice to feel like you've made a little progress so last year wasn't wasn't floyd's first he had a puppy season too didn't he yep yep this will be his third so it was you know he's this this will be his third full season and you know and again i think you know everybody says the britney's mature a little slower and and i will freely admit there's a little i'm being i'm being trained on training britney's as much as i'm training a britney i think (laughs) so (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, that's but that's cool. part of the fun too, you know. 
So yeah, how old is Bill now? Bill is six. Okay, so this will be his sixth season, and and he's he's really pretty squared away. Yeah, I I mean compared to the pointing dogs I've worked with in the past, he was he was really pretty. You know, I hesitate to use the word easy, but it, his training was very linear. Like there there weren't a lot of problems to solve. It was just repetition and and um, you know paying attention and yeah, and he's he's doing what he needs to do just fine. Are you pretty much running them separately all the time? Do you ever run them together? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I worked on with, with Bill was training him to flush off of, you know, flush mm. points, yep. okay. um, which, which, you know, akin to what they do in the South yep. with quail and, and in the West, it's a pretty darn effective technique on grouse and woodcock. I don't know a lot of people that do it. And of course you, you know, you have to have a pointer, a pointing dog who's, you know, who can, who can work with that. Mm. Um, but it's nice because, you know, a scenario will be all, we'll have one or two pointing dogs down and we'll have Bill there. And, you know, those pointing dogs are out, let's say 50 to a hundred Bill's zero to 35. So if anything slips by the pointing dogs yep. and we're in the vicinity of it, it's going to go up. And then, you know, when one of the dogs goes on point, I give Bill, uh, you know, a brief return whistle. I use the little, the little quiet Acme spaniel whistles, so I get him back. We soft heel in on a point. Everybody gets lined up, and I turn him loose. And it, you know, it really changes the equation of how those birds react when they go up. And it's, uh, it's pretty neat. And I mean, it it gets to the point where it's so habitual. I've got a guy I hunt with a lot who's got a really good small musterlander, and he's got kind of an older collar, and it's got a real distinct tone when it goes off on point. And it's to the point where when Bill when Bill hears that collar going off, he'll he'll just come back on soft heel. Mm-hmm. Like he knows he's that's just like a whistle command for him now. So and I do hunt Bill alone a lot with classic spaniel type, you know, classic cocker spaniel type linear patchy cover. Yep. Where you're trying to be real, you know, that's that's where he really shines. And I've gotten so I like that that type of hunting more and more. So yeah, I I hope to hope to do a little bit more, or I should say some of that because I really have have done very little of it, but it's definitely something I want to do. And I I do I think about I wonder a lot about dog on point, and if you had a flushing dog to go in, like how that alters bird behavior and bird escape behavior, because that's a big you know that's that's the game within the game of bird hunting is if you've got a dog on point, then it's like how do you position yourself to try to maintain a shot opportunity and get there in a strategic way and not, you know, not put yourself in a bad situation, which happens inevitably, but you're, you're trying to, trying to be efficient in your moves in that point. And yeah, sometimes I think, gosh, I wish Bill was here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, and I, I find the birds like that just really, the birds are so, um, I, I, I don't know if I'd use the term scared, but they're paying attention so much to that little, you know, demon coming in. Mm-hmm they're they they lose track of you and they kind of lose track of where the pointing dogs are so like they're less in control of their predetermined escape route because of that they are pressure freaked out yeah you know they are just and and i find that they really they pop up Mm -hmm. you get a lot more a lot more vertical flight out of them so you get a better look and then you know because they're trying to avoid the cocker and that's their center of attention i mean they're, they're not putting obstacles between you and them the way they normally would if you know, right. you're walking in on a standard point and the birds. You're the source of pressure. Yeah. Yep. yep. And they're, they're going to go low and away and put as much garbage between you and them as they can. Yeah. Uh, and they, they just don't do that so much. 
So it's pretty logical to, to see how that, how that would happen. So it's, yeah, that's neat. So this season, anything new on the list? We're going to, we're going to start talking shot shells and stuff here in, in a minute, but I'll figure I'll wrap up the hunting conversation. You got any, any trips planned already for next, this fall? Yeah. Thinking about doing, thinking about doing, I, I really want to get out West and do hunts and, and sharp tails. And yeah. I'm trying to put together something for that again, early in the season. And I might couple that with, you know, because I've got friends and family in Minnesota, I might, you know, either coming or going stop for a grouse and woodcock hunt in, you know, northern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of on my mind. And again, that'll be a big, that'll be a big pivot point fulcrum for a lot of other things. But, you know, definitely going to go up and hunt the western UP once or twice, going to hunt the central UP once. I'd like, again, I'd like to get over to Wisconsin. I had a great a great week long hunt in Northern Wisconsin, um, last year. So I like to do that again. And just basically tell my wife that I've, I've been kidnapped for most of September and all of October and, <laughs> you know, I'll be, I'll be delivered back November 1st. Well, so <laughs> just, just don't try to go shoot sporting clays on her birthday, Dell. Then you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. That'll, that'll <laughs> apparently that's not okay. I've I found that out. It's just, anyway, you learn. You learn as you get older. Luckily, the Sporting so. Clays range is not open on my wife's birthday, December 31st, so <laughs> I won't have that problem. Yeah. But I'm sure I could get myself into trouble in many other ways. So you being a reloader, this will be my segue to our to our conversation. It, has reloading gotten as hard as – because it seems like one could default to the idea, oh, man, I wish I was a reloader in today's, you know, ammo environment because I could, you know, just load up whatever I need. And yeah, yes, if you've got the the supplies, but as I understand from talking to you, that's that's become more challenging too. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's, it's still not good at all. Um, components, I mean, they're trickling out now more than I've seen probably in 18 months. There, a lot of stuff is a hundred percent more expensive than it was, especially primers are ridiculously expensive. Again, you're seeing more of it available than you did, you know, say eight, 10 months ago, but primers and cases, if, if you need new cases, which a lot of the stuff I do, I like to start with, you know, factory, just brand new prime cases it uh, or hulls, if you want to call them yeah, that, yeah. Th those are still pretty hard to come by, but yeah. It's, it's tough. And, you know, I, I, I've always, I mean, I've reloaded since I was in my early teens for both shotgun and, and rifle and pistol. But so I always had reloading equipment here and I was fairly well set up and mainly reloading my own hunting ammunition is cause, cause I really like to get the most performance and as I can. And, and, you know, I just enjoy the meticulous fun kind of yeah. nature of, of eking all the performance you can and, and really knowing what your loads are doing. But when these ammunition shortages started to happen, especially for me, I go through quite a lot of test fire ammunition, and a lot of it is the low pressure, two and a half inch stuff. You know, especially for twelve and sixteen, and the supply of those is is virtually non-existent right now. So I kind of had to reconfigure some of my stuff so I could be reloading, you know, pressure appropriate two and a half inch stuff, and kind of as a byproduct of that i got into doing uh you know testing and working with a lot of roll crimp loads and that's been really fun i i've really enjoyed that that was something that i never really did up until you know a year ago so all right so on that note we'll jump in a little bit the roll crimp side of things that's that's something that you maybe 
folks maybe wouldn't be too familiar with that if they've bought a lot of the standard factory ammunition. I'm I'm seeing it now on some of the, uh, the like the TSS loads that I shoot for for turkeys. Those have roll crimps with a little disc on top. What's the what's the difference there? And then like what what can you kind of get out of a roll crimp versus what you wouldn't on a five or six point star crimp? Is that what they call it? Yeah, well, there's so there's a there's a um, six point and eight point, okay. as, and and those are typically referred to as like fold crimps. So the a, a fold crimp, you you've got excess, you know, case material in front of where the shot column stops, and it's it's folded in, and then the crimp itself it's pushed down, so there's a little lip, and and that puts down and inner pressure on those folds, and basically stabilizes the crimp. Um, so that's your that's your standard full crimp, and that's what the majority of ammunition is now. And the the big reason that manufacturers like a fold crimp is it's easier, way easier to do on mechanized machinery. Mm. Originally, all, almost all cartridges, shotgun cartridges, started out being roll crimped, and that's where you've got a, a given amount of material in front of the shot, and it's actually rolled in on itself. And there's what we would call an overshot uh, card or overshot disc sits on top of the shot and as you as you roll the plastic or the paper over it rolls over on itself you know forms a neat little radius and then the edges pushing back down contact with that disc and push it against the shot and that's your that's your roll crimp yeah it's interestingly why why a lot of uh vintage guns have such short forcing cones is because the the amount the the length of a fold crimp is uh, a quarter to a third the length of a fold crimp. So there's just less material opening up into the end of the chamber. And those super short forcing cones with the roll crimp allowed the the shot column to and the wadding to make the jump from the case diameter to the barrel diameter much more quickly. And then they could, you know, that would have maintained pre- the, the wad or the, the wad or plastic water, if you want to call it that, or the wadding would seal up quicker and maintain pressure. Mm. So, but roll, roll crimping has its benefits. You know, it, it def be, because it's easier for the roll crimp to open up. Um, it takes less pressure, uh, to unroll that little rolled over section instead of, you know, opening up that, that, uh, fold crimp, mm-hmm. you get lower pressure. So I, I, I would consider it significantly lower pressure. Um, you're also, you're taking technically you're taking up less case volume because you're you need less material for forming the the crimp um and then also when you get into reloading your what what you call your stack height so that's the overall height of your shot your wad and yeah. your and your powder you know when you're when you're reloading your recipes are really geared around that combination equaling a very specific height so the fold crimp can form properly whereas with a roll crimp you can you know, tune your load to where you want it velocity weight wise, you know what your stack height is and you can just trim your case off to the, the given amount, trim the case off, roll crimp it over and, and you're okay. Um, and, and again, it, you end up with some, some quite short, sometimes some varying length shot shells, but especially with today's really good quality, modern plastic uh, shot cups, there's, there's really no issue with, you know, say shooting a, 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 a two, you know, a, a two and five eighths inch shell in a two and three quarter inch chamber. Mm. So versus like what potential issue would there be without that modern plastic shot cup? Just, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the quote unquote old days um, with vintage uh, shot shells, 
the wadding was typically like felt. Uh, it was paper fiber. It was um, some organic material. Sometimes they were waxed. Sometimes they were uh, treated. So basically they just didn't, uh, they couldn't expand as quickly um, or as uniformly as a plastic shot cup did. So you just have issues with pressure and gas escaping around the wadding and you just have inefficiency and fouling and you whatnot destroy, but destroy a pattern basically yeah and, and end up with bad fouling and you know we we, we really take for granted how well are the, the modern even the inexpensive modern plastic wads are i mean you see guys all the time that that have like chamber mates or you know gauge reduction tubes for their shotguns yeah. and sometimes they're i mean sometimes some of them are only 10 12 inches long and you can shoot a 20 gauge out of a 12, you know, 20 gauge set of inserts in a 12 gauge barrel, and they hit the end of that, and the the base of the wad expands, and the shot cup expands, and I mean, I've I've thoroughly pattern test pattern tested those, and they throw great patterns. Like you're not losing, you're not losing anything typically when you when you do that. So, and I just say that to point out that the again those those modern plastic shot cups are really effective at what they do. Yeah, they can. Yeah, so, they can. You can take a take a 20 gauge and allow it to like gradually enough open up into that 12 gauge bore, not that far down the barrels and, and not lose you all your efficiency or pressure or gas or everything. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if we talked about those. That's something that it doesn't get brought up much. I, I definitely recall reading about those in a few different places of just, you got an old 12 gauge or something and you want to shoot 28 gauge loads out of it or something. You put those, what are they called? Chamber mates? Is that what they are? Or, or a gauge? Well, yeah, chamber chambermate I think is a brand name, okay. but what you what you would just call it is is like, you know, barrel inserts or yeah. or a, um you know or a or a chamber sleeve insert. And they're they're actually quite popular with American, you know, shooting registered American skeet birds. A lot of those competitions you have to shoot a given amount of targets with the different gauges so that's 12 20 mm, 28 yeah. 410 so so you, you know historically that's why you see like multi-gauge sets you'll you'll see one frame if it's a ski gun that has a each one of those barrel sets but now a lot of guys will just have one gun that's a 12 and then they'll have a full set of those tubes and they can go to a competition and shoot it's mainly a competition thing you don't see that a lot in field guns because you know if you've got a 12 gauge weight gun especially with the variety of ammo that there's typically been in the past, you could just, you know, if, if you wanted to hunt with that gun and, and deal with the extra weight of a 12 gauge, but shoot a 20 gauge load, you could just get seven eighths or three quarter ounce, 12 gauge. Load. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that's so. probably the reason why you don't, I, I do remember reading. I want to say I am 99.9% sure it was in, it was in one of Steve Smith's books, the former editor of pointing dog journal. And I think his his pitch for it was that he just I think he had a maybe he had a twelve or a sixteen gauge gun that he really really loved how it felt in his hands but he wanted to shoot twenty eight gauge loads and so he he put those gauge reduction tubes in there and I know he he really liked it because he loved that gun so I could see that but are those pretty universal like you basically just drop them into any gun I, I think there's a you know and this is this is really getting into the the target shooting aspect yeah um, of modern guns but. I think there's a there's a lot of variation like some sets will just drop in and I think a lot of times those tend to be a little less efficient with how they seal up and okay. and this this and that whereas I know you can you know you can send your barrels to a company like Kohler or Rhino or Briley and they'll 
custom fit a set of tubes for your gun and you know i I, they'll seal up real well and it's even to the point where there's inserts so the ejectors and extractors work you know the the gauge the chamber end of the of the set of tubes has an an ejector slash extractor body that interfaces with the ejector slash extractor body from the the large you know from the actual barrel set so those even work appropriately yeah um so yeah just to say there's a lot there's there's quite a lot of variation there in cost and quality and efficiency yeah one of those interesting things not probably not super relevant to many people listening but gearing up for your next hunt check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you whether you're looking for dog collars gps tracking devices kennels beds leads training equipment or first aid supplies ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. I was curious, and this might be speculative on your part, but any idea why I, I might, like why I would be seeing the roll crimp in some of those, you know, heavy payload TSS turkey loads um, versus a fold crimp? Do you have any idea why they would why they would go that route? Uh, I, I think there could be two things there. One is case volume. Yeah. You know, like like you're just to move some of those loads. There there might be uh, special wads that that have a larger crush section sure um it might be that you're typically with those tricky loads you're throwing quite a heavy payload so the payload's going to take basically you're just using more volume in the case Mm -hmm. and if if you're using a roll crimp because it takes up less of the overall length to maintain if you're taking less of the interior volume and maintaining the same overall length of the case you've just got more room to work with and so here's the thing too if you see case you know when somebody says it's a two and three quarter inch cartridge that's based on the fired open length of the cartridge right if you measure a two and three quarter inch shell unfired it won't be two and three quarter inches right right so so if, if you measure the length of a fold crimp two and three quarter inch shell it's going to be substantially shorter than the length of a two and three quarter inch roll crimp shell because that that folded over crimp takes so much less length of of plastic to form so you just have more room to work with, I would imagine. Also, it's um, if a manufacturer, and I just I don't know if this is the case, but from I find this in my point of view where roll crimping is nice because if I'm working up a load or it's something very custom, uh, you know, kind of special, and I'm not going to do very many of them, I don't want to have to go through and reset all my equipment to just load a couple of them um, up. And because when you'll find when if, if anybody takes up reloading or, or you're a loader, you will know that fidgeting around and um, setting your press up so you get good crimps is 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 tedious mm. and can be quite time consuming. So a roll crimp would be a lot simpler to do, you know, if you're just doing a few of them. I don't know if that's the case for the for big manufacturers. Right, right. Those TSS loads, but 
but for a hand loader, it certainly is an issue. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, bring the focus back to upland bird hunting and shot shells and stuff. And I would, I would love to just sort of dive into kind of getting some of your thoughts. Um, obviously you're reloader. So you think about this stuff in a, in a way that maybe me or somebody buying ammo off the shelf might not, but I, I really want to get your thoughts on how you think about this. And this is going back to some conversations I've had on the show recently. You think about gauge and payload and, and shot size and those kinds of things. So maybe as a starting point, could we just sort of walk through like what makes up the shot shell and its components, not everything down to the last detail, but specifically around that payload shot size gauge, you know, whether it's an ounce load of seven shot, like talk about each of those factors, components, and then start getting into how you think about, you know, those for a specific application. Okay. So I, I'm going to maybe start at the end here. Okay. Just, just to preface it. And the first thing is in all of this, the one thing that's important is to pattern your shotgun and understand the patterning process because all of the, 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 whether you're using factory loaded ammo or you're hand loading, you know, you gotta be able to, to, in a scientific way, in a realistic way, test what you're doing and come up with values and, um, you know, data sets that, that allow you to make decisions about the performance that you're trying to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that patterning process is, is, is important. And there's a couple different ways you can do it. One is like the standard 30 yard pattern where you'll do percentiles, um, to figure out your choke that I, I think that's interesting to do to see if your, if you put a modified choke in your gun, is it actually throwing a modified pattern at, and that's important because I can speak from experience where I've got a shotgun that's one of my main hunting guns that with a with the factory modified choke basically throws an extra full pattern with most loads. Hmm. So if I wasn't paying attention to that, I'd think, hey, I'm going to go on a mid-season pheasant hunt and put my what everybody puts in for their second shot, you know, modified, and I'm out there shooting X full. And, you know, on a far bird, that's not going to matter. If I get a close flushing bird, if I get a bird, if I'm shooting, if I think I'm shooting modified and I'm shooting extra full and that bird comes up at 20 yards, I'm shooting a pattern the size of a baseball, you know, so that's really going to handicap you. So moral of the story is, is first off, have a system so you can test your loads. And, and really what I like to do is you will pattern test that at yardage increments. So if you're, if you're, hunting birds that are going to flush closer start at 15 Mm. and shoot patterns working out to say 35 and analyze your pattern. And, and you can compare loads and compare both the diameter of your pattern and also the density. And as you work out, you can work out until your pattern gets spotty. So, you know, Hey, at 15 yards, my pattern is this big and I want to maximize the size of the pattern and I know that with that given load and that given gun, with that given choke, I, my pattern starts to fall apart. And I'm just throwing numbers out here. But, yeah, so my pattern would start to fall apart at about 35 yards. So so you're judging the effective distances both close and far away because the overall – really the overarching theory is, is we want to have the largest pattern we can have because a larger diameter pattern is going to be easier to hit birds with while still being having effective lethality to make a clean, mm-hmm. you know, ethical kill on whatever species we're, we're hunting. And that varies a lot because 
you know, a woodcock is going to require a lot different pattern density than a pheasant. Yep. So you, you, you've got to take that sort of thing into account. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, and in that, oh, oh, go ahead. I just want to jump in here. I might, during the course of this, I may try to simplify things that can't be simplified. So just, you just, you just can tell me that, but I wanted to grab this before we got away from it in that thinking from an upland bird hunting perspective, you know, I, I can really wrap my head around the downrange part of the pattern, like where it opens up so much that we've got big holes in it and a bird can get through. That's not good. At that 15 yard mark, is there, if I went out and shot, shot a choke at a piece of paper, is there a a limit that you're looking for? Like, I don't want anything smaller than this. Like, could I, could you put a number on it and say, I don't want a pattern that is, you know, six inches across at 15 yards. It's yeah. It's, and, and, and again, so that's all very relative. Yeah. And what you're doing is comparing load to load and you'll find each gun has a personality. So mm-hmm. put your cylinder, put your cylinder choke in at 15 yards and try five different loads. And then you're going to get a feel for what each individual load does. And it will, and also shot size, shot size will affect pattern size and density as well. And, you know, it's very pertinent because, you know, early season, especially down here, I, I might never have a chance at a grouse more than 20 yards away Mm -hmm. for the first two and a half weeks of the season. I mean, any, any, you know, and the differences between hunting, early season and late season shark tail. I mean, early season, your flushes are what, 10, 10 yards away. Sometimes I've had a lot of close shots on early season sharp tails. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you go back out like I hunted over Thanksgiving and things are a lot farther away. Yeah. So again, it really, th- there's no hard specifications in, you know, testing. And I would refer to that as like, as like terminal effective patterning. Like we're not, we're not coming up with a value like when you do 30 yard percentile testing to say this choke is a modified because it's got 60% of the pellet, you know, or, or excuse me, a modified would be like 70. It has 70% of the pellets inside the 30 inch circle at 30 yards. You know, that's not what we're trying to achieve, you know, achieve yeah. with the, with the patterning I'm talking about What I'm the patterning I'm talking about is that incremental patterning to tell you diameter versus density. What, what is the effective range and the diameter of my pattern? Because again, I go back to that statement. You want to have as large a pattern as you can have while still maintaining lethal density. Yeah. And, um, and then kind of, so that was kind of the whole preamble about, you know, we've got to have a way to quantify what we're doing and make decisions about how we're going to, um, you know, put a value on this data that we're getting from these patterns. Um, and I've really found that, you know, personally in the, in the testing I've done and all the hunting I've done, I think we tend to use, we, we tend to, especially with modern shot shells, we shoot too large of shot with too much choke and, and try to push it too fast. And I think, you know, my philosophy on that comes a lot from dealing with vintage guns where they were typically a very standard payload per gauge or slightly heavier than what we're used to now, but at a much more moderated velocity you know, it's very rare. I, I can tell you, honestly, I do not have a single load that I hunt with that's over 1,200 feet per second yeah. in any gate. And and the majority of the time I'm targeting, like, about 1150. And and that can allow me then to maybe take a step, an incremental step up in payload and have a little bit, you know, maybe use a slightly smaller shot. And, you know, that means I can have a larger pattern, you know, use less choke 
have a larger pattern up close and still maintain that lethal density downrange yep. further than you would if you used a, a lighter, faster load with bigger shot. And it's it's shocking. Like if you take a factory ounce and a quarter of sixes out of say an improved cylinder choke and you shoot that at thir- at like thirty five yards, I I mean some of it some there will be anomalies and some patterns will will be better than others, but it will probably shock a lot of people how big you know, you know, how holy those patterns get at that distance with those larger shot sizes. Yeah. You're just, you're, and, your pellet count is dropping such that you're losing density a lot quicker than you might think. Yeah. And, and I've always operated under the principle too of, I, you know, if you do the math and, and it's, it's some fairly simple equations, but you know, two hits from a number five size shot compared to say five or six with a number six or a number, you know, or a seven and a half, you're, you're putting a lot more energy on the target because you've got multiple impacts. With a more, m- more impact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one thing too, that's, that's a lot of times, you know, people talk about penetration and you, you need to take pellet penetration into account, but you have to quantify that and say, how much do you really need, you know, on, on even say pheasant or bigger prairie grouse type species, if you're penetrating an inch and a half, an inch sometimes, you're well into the lethal vitals of that bird and you know it's going to be an ethical you know clean clean kill on that bird so yeah i don't know if that kind of answered your question about how i look at that i find too if you know if you moderate your velocity your pressure drops there's less recoil and i i and it's easier on the guns you also end up with uh you end up with more uniform patterns because with a drop in pressure slash velocity, you also have less pellet deformation, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's very applicable when you get into gauges like 28, 410, yep. where your, your, your stack height in proportion to the, to the width is, is quite a bit longer than yeah. they were, would be in say a 16 or a 12. Yeah. No, no, no square load at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which is something I, w- w- I want to talk about that, but yeah, this, the, that was a great, premise to to this conversation and again it's not like like we can't answer all these questions this is it's a super complex and the deeper i go there's just so many variables and i mean you could literally answer every question with basically it depends or that's relative you know depends on what you want to do like to try to simplify this stuff is is sort of flawed in in a way but in order to help folks people understand and make decisions at some point you got to simplify things to a certain extent right yeah, well, and, and, and that just makes the point I hammer on all the time is it's important to go pattern your gun. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, how many hours do we, you know, wax on about boots and electronics and scouting applications and vests and all this stuff? And people will, will go on endlessly about that. And how many people have taken their gun out and done a 15 to 35-yard pattern test and really analyzed those patterns? Because... You know, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Probably don't want to, wanna, probably don't even want to know the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. And and again, you, a lot of, you know, when I'm explaining this, I try to make it as simple as I can. And, and, and as you've said, it is somewhat of a complex topic, but very much like doing a gun fitting, the, the patterning plate doesn't lie. Yeah. And it's the same thing with patterning your shotgun. That doesn't lie. When you can, when you can put, you know, five patterns up on the wall, and incrementally look at that pattern in five yard, you know, just look right down the wall and look at 
you know, this is 15, this is 20, 25, 30, 35, and you look at all those sequentially, that's a pretty direct download of information to what's going, you know, a, a, a reality check on what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, very similar to what, what you're pointing out. I've seen enough people, I've watched you do enough gun fittings now to see, and, and myself included, to shoot the patterning plate and watch the pattern move as we make adjustments to the gun. I mean, again, like you learn more just visually by seeing that than you do by, you know, spending two hours talking about it. So same, same thing. And that's, again, it's, it's said more often than we can count, you know, pattern your shotgun, pattern your shotgun. And it's almost said so much that, you know, it's one of those things where you can, you can kind of tune it out. But to your point, that is in fact, where the rubber meets the road, or there's a term that they I've heard in, in fishing before where, you know, it's like the one thing that actually contacts the fish or, you know, your, your shotgun pattern is the one thing that actually contacts the bird. It's perhaps maybe the most critical piece of gear you've got. Yeah. And and I, and I will, I will guarantee you, if people go out and pattern their guns like that, you will find anomalies and you will find things that that will either benefit you drastically or hinder you drastically. I, I mean, as you know, and just a quick example is, you know, I'm a 28 gauge devotee and I have been since I was 16. Yeah. And years ago, I I found one. It was a heavy. It was a heavy per gauge weight. It was a seven eight ounce load. It was a very high quality load from a very high quality manufacturer. And I just found out of two of my 28 gauge that that load was awful. The patterns were even up close. The patterns were incredibly patchy and erratic. And I could feed those. I could feed those two 28 gauges I was testing with my hand loads and a bunch of other different factory loads, both lighter, the same, and heavier weight as that one cartridge. And they patterned beautifully. But 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 that cartridge combination in either of those two guns was was really bad and if i hadn't done that and i happened to be using that ammunition you know in the field i would have i would have had a pretty pretty rough time of it you know yeah so something else you 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 mentioned earlier that i think was would be worth highlighting or pointing out is that a choke the pattern will change in the same choke just based on a different shot size right like the same load of a shot size six versus maybe even the, you know, the same skew or same, same exact load with a shot size seven and a half, those could, those patterns could look different through that same choke. Absolutely. You know, there, and and it's one of the reasons again, that patterning is so important is because there's so much variation. The difference in wad construction makes a huge difference. Differences in, um, again, velocity, but you know, if we're just looking at some of the internal components, like the, how big is the shot cup? Does the shot cup encapsulate all of the shot or part of the shot? Is there, is there some type of, you know, pressure absorbing material in the shot cup via, uh, you know, felt wadding in the back of the shot cup or buffer people. I don't think people understand a lot of times how drastically different shot shell construction can be and how different the wads can be. I had a, during my lecture at Drotfest, I had a picture that I put up during my presentation and, um, I had a picture and there were, I think, eight, eight or nine different wads in this picture, all wads that I used to reload. And you look at them and, and I mean, you can tell they're functionally basically the same thing, right? Because they've got the same basic construction. But as far as how they actually look, I mean, they're remarkably different. They're, there's huge amount of variation there. So you got to take that into account, too. And, and again, that just going back to the fact that all of that 
really cause some variability in how your gun and your pattern functions with, with different ammunition. Okay, when it comes to payload, we talked a little bit about the, or we mentioned the square load, I should say, which I've talked about a number of times on the show. And I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, at what point do you, like in your, let's say we're talking 28 gauge, you know, I, I know that you have shot some loads that are seven, eighth ounce, or maybe even a one ounce load, which is a heavy for gauge load. As you mentioned earlier, at what point do you, what are you looking for that would, that would make you want to shoot that versus at what point do you say, all right, I got to back off. It's too many, too many pellets in this. There's too much stack height, too many pellets. Like, how do you think about that? Uh, again, the, the patterning board tells me that, Okay. you know, if, if I'm using a perfect example would be in a 28 gauge with a really heavy per gauge load, like a one ounce 28 gauge load. Not a, not a lot of people shoot those. Um, a lot of times they don't pattern well um, because the stack height is so tall, you know, you get a lot of pellet deformation. So the, if I'm working up a given load and it's too heavy per gauge or I'm pushing it too hard, I'll see my pattern start to fall apart mm-hmm. and get really patchy. You know, perfect example is, I have a, a, a medium to lower velocity one ounce 28 gauge load and with regular magnum shot, which is, you know, what, four, five-ish percent antimony, yep. the, the, the patterns are awful. And I would not feel comfortable using that in a game scenario. Um, I take that exact same load and I use, you know, triple nickel plated shot I get from BPI and it patterns beautifully. And I'm a okay with, I mean, that load is a wonderful load. So just the difference in shot shell hardness, or excuse me, just the difference in shot hardness turned that from being a, an unethical, terrible load into a load that's very functional. Um, so I know people talk about square load yep. and a lot. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm telling people they should shoot heavy per gauge loads. I'm just saying that it's okay to do if, you've moderated your pressure appropriately so you're not harming the gun and dealing with too much recoil and if you pattern the gun to know that you're not essentially i guess the term people use refer to as like blowing your pattern or blowing mm-hmm. out a pattern um, when you're pushing it too hard or too much weight and your pattern gets spotty i find a lot of that is moderated with uh you know if you're using good components you know if you're using good wads that that take care of the you know cradle and, and cushion the shot and then you're using harder shot you can get away with some of that that heavier per weight stuff. Yeah. And you know, where, where that's useful is, is, is really weight and handleability. I mean, I've got a, I've got an over and under lightweight frame 28 gauge. It's a modern gun that will, will take some pretty stiff loads. And, you know, I'm shooting a one ounce load at about 1125 of say eights or six and a halves. You know, I'm essentially carrying a 28 gauge in a five pound one ounce package. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so that's that's kind of the benefit there um i do again when i'm talking about vintage stuff i i again i always want to be as low pressure and as low velocity as you can get away with so yeah no i i think that's that's great insight and i bring up this the square load and i you know sometimes you smile because that is it's one of those it's like a i don't know if it's a tired old concept but it's it's a great foundational thing for folks to understand as like a, a benchmark or a baseline. And then just understanding how you can push and pull on different levers and variables yeah. to, to extract performance or squeeze a little bit more juice out of a, yeah. out of a given gauge or a given cartridge. Well, and, and 
you know, the concept of a square load, it's, it's, it's a great just learning tool to get people to understand that there's an effect between the, you know, width versus length of the shot column that right. has a drastic effect. And, and, you know, talking about the concept of the square load is a great lead into to just understanding that, yeah, that, that can have a pretty drastic effect. And it's something we should be paying attention to. And like there's so. there, you can, you can always highlight things with extremes too. Like if it was all about pattern density and there were no other factors, like I would, you could say, well, why don't we just shoot four ounces of, of number nine shot? You know, like that, that wouldn't work. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. so sometimes you can kind of paint the picture by talking about those extremes, which I think is interesting when it comes to speed and velocity, that is one that is you know, it's interesting because you, you see a lot of fast, fast loads out there. And I think sometimes uh, you'll hear it dismissed sometimes in that, like people want to sell bigger, faster, stronger, that kind of thing. But you know, how, how slow is too slow? And at what point do you, do you start dropping off on that side of things? I mean, I, I can say like usually about 1125 is, is, is as slow as I go. You, you know, another thing you got to take into account too, is your, is your, um, when you really start, if you're using slower burning powders, more bulky powders at those lower velocities, you know, you do have issues with, with burn efficiency mm -hmm. and really heavy fouling. You know, there's, again, I, we can go down a bunch of rabbit holes, but yeah. one of the reasons that, you know, in the, if you're shooting a double gun, it doesn't really matter if there's a little extra fouling. If you're shooting a model, modern gas operated, you know, semi-automatic gun, fouling is a little bit more of an issue there. Yeah. So, you know, the, the manufacturers are going to try to run those shells at a little bit higher pressure. So the powder burns more efficiently and you get a cleaner burn. You know, that's just, just, but I, again, I would say that the vast majority of my cartridges that I load for both, you know, shop uses and hunting 1150, you know, any from 11, 1125 to 1175, that's, that's my range. Kind of a sweet spot for you. Yeah, it's pretty shocking how when I'll go out and I'll do a bunch of testing, regardless of what gauge it is, it just always seems like I'm getting my optimal optimum performance at about 1150. One thing we we didn't talk about, and I know I've I've got your thoughts on this before, but when you talk about increasing stack height and increasing payload for a given gauge the thing that enters the conversation there in many people's minds whether like how relevant it is depends but shot stringing and and the fear being you will have a pattern that is too strung out and then you lose pattern efficiency so you have you want to comment on that at all yeah i i i hate to tell everybody but <laughs> shot functional shot string is one of those things that's great to talk about yep. it seems neat but when you really, when you really run the numbers on it, unless you're shooting really, really heavy payloads at really long distances at really fast moving targets, it's, it's just not, a, the variation is, is not a factor. You know, if you, if you even equate, you know, some of the estimates as far as how long shot strings are, are, I think are vastly over estimated. But even if you go on the high side and say, you know, your shot string is twice as twice. I mean, kind of the industry understanding is that typically your shot string is about one and a half times the width of your pattern usually. Now that's going to be elongated if you're shooting, say, a 410 or a 28 that's that's got a heavier payload. So let's say it's twice. So 
you got to do the math on this and say, okay, if you're 25 yards away, okay, and your pattern is out of a, say, an improved cylinder choke, your pattern, and I'm just kind of throwing some numbers here, but your pattern's maybe 25 inches in diameter with an improved cylinder or or a cylinder choke. We can talk about, we'll phrase this in grouse. So we can then say the pattern is what? 50 inches long. Twice, twice 50 as, inches, so that's about five feet, right? Yeah, from the front, from the pellet in the lead to the pellet in the back. Is, is five feet. Yep. Now, even if you make a reduction of velocity, that pattern front to back is traveling at, let's just say, 1,150 feet per second. Yeah. The, the time that it elapses between the front pellet hitting and the back pellet hitting, pellet hitting is... I mean, I, I, I don't have a calculator right, in front of me right. here, but I could, I could rattle it off. And, and you're going, so you take that time and then say, okay, how fast does a grouse fly mm-hmm. from right to left? How far is that grouse going to move in that given amount of time? And it's like, it's, it's less than inches. Yeah. You know, it, 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 and, and you also have to take into account that only horizontal movement counts. Correct. So if the, if the bird's flying away at a 45 degree angle, shot string is reduced the the effect of shot string would be reduced well yeah the effect of the 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 linear distance the linear horizontal distance that the um birds traveling is is less yeah the most dramatic effect you could have would be a a bird that is doing a straight 90 degree crosser left to right or right to left that would be where you would be most susceptible to you know a negative effect of shot string but the the whole point that you're trying to make is that the significance of it is probably not so great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I'd have to double check this math, but from the, if you're talking about a shot string going 1150 feet per second, that will cover five feet in four thousandths of a second. Yeah. You know, how, how, how far does a grouse fly? And I mean, you could, you could triple that number, you know, and say, okay, there's, a, there's variations or my math is bad and, and whatever. And, you know, increase the effect by orders of magnitude and it would still have absolutely no effect now you know one could say if you were shooting sea ducks out of a float boat and the ducks are doing 65 miles an hour and they're perfectly crossing and they're Mm -hmm. 45 yards away and you're shooting an ounce and a half of you know a heavier than lead non-tox load maybe shot string could have an effect as far as how well you hook up i i guess yeah but uh yeah it's uh if you run the numbers it's just it's not really all that applicable you think about think about distances and stuff of of most upland hunting and and upland birds and sort of the shot sizes and the patterns that we're using um i can definitely definitely see where well and that comes in and i'll tell you what's interesting too where, where a lot of people think they see these great big huge long shot strings is typically you know when they're shooting over water mm. and they'll be shooting a cripple that's down of course obviously your dog's not in the water or they'll they'll just go out and want to see it and like shoot it shoot onto the ground or into a snowbank or something and the thing you've got to realize when doing that it's kind of an optical illusion because because you're shooting down the bottom of the pattern starts hitting the ground first yeah and it it elongates over so it looks like that pattern's 10 or 15 feet long but it's really just because because of the the angle of the you know the bottom of the pattern hitting the ground first and then eating up that twenty five or thirty in, inches of depth as it you know yep. as it hit 
hits the ground further and further away. That reminds me of something that I that I read, and I have yet to test this, but I I read somewhere this person was trying to to really dispel the idea that shot string had a had a super dramatic effect, and he pointed out a similar thing in that if you were to walk up to the side of a pond and it's not this top to bottom effect that you're talking about when you're shooting a cripple on the water. But if you, if you walk up to a pond and you sort of swing your gun as fast as you can and you shoot, you won't see this long shot string. You're, you're going to see all your shot hit basically in the same spot, which would, would then point out that, you know, it's not like you're throwing this big, the old, like the example that you've read, I've, you've probably read this, like the garden hose where you take your garden hose and you, you sort of wave it back and forth. And that's supposed to sort of exemplify what shot string is and it does, but in a very extreme way. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean that the pattern does have front to back linear depth, mm-hmm. but the yeah. fact that it's, but, but it's just all negated because the, the pattern is moving so damn fast. Such such a small amount of time elapses between when the front pellet hits and when the back pellet hits. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to rile some people up by saying that, but <laughs> but it, it is what it is. A lot of people talk about it. It's fun to talk about. Yeah. It's fun to debate. I just, I, again, I I have my old TA85 calculator here, and when you do the math, as they say, you you come to some realities that right. just tell you certain things, you yeah. know, so. Yeah, a lot of this these topics are perpetually debated, and they will continue to be, no matter what is said on, mm-hmm. the, on this podcast. <laughs> uh Okay, one other thing is, well, I wanted to ask you about your sub-gauges, and we've kind of, you know, we've sort of answered some of those questions, and, and I know you're a big fan of the 28-gauge, and but when you're, when you're putting together a bird gun, what are you thinking about when it comes to barrel length and, and gauge and weight and all those things that would, that would, you know, lend itself to some of your favorite guns, which I know tend to be smaller gauges and longer-barreled guns? Well, I, you know, so just, just like in the, the concept of patterning where you, you can come with these fundamental pr- principles, like in, 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 in patterning your gun, you want as large a pattern as you can have and still have it be effectively lethal. Like that's an overarching concept that determines everything else, right? And I found with, you know, bird guns, my philosophy there is, is you want as light a gun as you can shoot well. Right. So that's that's the concept there. Light guns are responsive. They're easier. They're more responsive. They're easier to to get onto the target. They're lighter to carry. They're also harder to shoot because they don't have momentum. Right. So every everybody's going to have a sweet spot where, you know, I can shoot a six and a half pound gun really well. But and this is very noticeable when you hit the clays course, you know, if, if you know, some guys can shoot their six pound you know, 16, six and a half pound, 16 gauge or six and a half pound, 20 gauge really well. And they all of a sudden pick up this lightweight frame 28 gauge and they're shooting the same amount of shot. Right. Yeah. Cause there's, again, there's such amount of variation and all of a sudden they're shooting a five pound one ounce gun and their, their scores just tank because it's the, you know, the, the gun is so responsive that it, it doesn't iron out any of your mistakes with its momentum. So that's, that's kind of the fundamental front judgment is, you know, shoot as light a gun as you can shoot well. And then from there, you can fall in and say, okay, what, what gauge do I predominantly want to be shooting? Yep. You know, do I want, and, and I'm one of those guys who's always, I'm, I, as 
probably is evident in, in how I've talked about things. I like guns that fill very specific roles. You know, I don't want a gun that will do everything okay. Yeah. I want three guns and each one does a very specific thing very well. So I tend to like, you know, just, and this is just personal preference stuff. And I'm, I mean, may, there is some logical basis to it, but I tend to like longer barrel guns. You know, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever missed a grouse because the last inch and a half of my barrels hung up on a twig. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I never have. Um, I also find that with sub gauge guns, the weight that you are working with, it's better if it's out front a little bit, you know, whereas if I was shooting a 12 gauge or a 16 gauge, I want that weight very much right between my hands. Um, you know, and that's going to be a gun that's say six and a half to maybe seven and a half pounds. I want that weight, that gun perfectly balanced right around or, you know, right on, or maybe slightly in front of the hinge pin. Hmm. Whereas if I'm shooting a five pound, you know, like I've got, I've got two alloy frame over and unders. One's a, you know, one's a 410 and one's a 28. I like the fact that they're a little barrel heavy because I'm only dealing with five pounds. Yep. So if it's, if it's a little out front, it's going to help me quite a bit as far as moderating any bobbles in my swing. So there's that. I don't know. I, I like sub gauges. And of course, again, I, I do a lot of my own reloading. So, yep. you know, I, I always use the example of for grouse, woodcock, some quail species that are going to be closer up. If you start looking at pellet count charts, you know, I, I really like eight and a half shot for my sub gauges. And if I'm shooting a 410, a three inch 410 with good shot, so I know I'm not blowing out my patterns. I, so I've tested and I know I'm pat, they're patterning well. In three quarters of an ounce of eight and a halves, I have as many pellets as an ounce of seven and a halves. So at normal grouse, woodcock slash, you know, and I'm, when I say quail, you know, I'm not talking about blue quail or you know, a lot of the quail species that are little track stars, it'll get up further away. But, you know, so in those scenarios, let's say 25 yards or closer, my 410 is not giving up a lot to a 12 gauge with a one ounce, seven and a half load. So it, it's kind of tricky to think about that and you got to wrap your head around it. But, but, you know, the pellet count and the pattern, you know, sheets don't lie. They really, so you can get those little gauges to really perform to punch way above their weight. And then, the true benefit of that comes is if, if, if you practice and you're proficient with shooting light guns, yep. you know, you can, you can kind of wedge yourself into having really lightweight, carryable, responsive guns that are shooting like guns that are a gauge or two larger. Yeah. I will say that this year I shot a, a lighter gun than I, than I had been shooting. And it, I noticed it on the sporting clays range when I was practicing before the season that it, it took a different a different movement from me. I say like a more intentional, I had to be more intentional about some of my moves with the gun. But once I committed to that and got it figured out, um, I ended up shooting that gun very well. Uh, but it was a, it was probably the most significant thing that I noticed about going, you know, probably about a half to three quarter pound lighter gun than I had been shooting. But I'm glad you brought up the pellet count because that's, you almost wonder like if manufacturers would would put the average shell pellet count on the box versus that ounce payload. Like you almost wonder if people would have a better understanding of this stuff. It's, it seems kind of odd that they don't, that pellet count is, is like almost hard to find. You gotta go look for those charts and stuff. That's again, and, and you've really hit on something there, Nick, and the number of people 
who have ever looked at a pellet count chart and these, I mean, you can Google this or, you know, look it up on any browser and yep. find endless pellet. You know, like it's an easy resource to find. I mean, how many people have actually looked at that? And when you really start to compare, you know, weights versus counts, it's pretty shocking. Yep. And, and again, I, I, I go back to when I was doing that presentation at Drockfest, I had a, a very straightforward pellet count chart on one of the, one of the slides and I brought it up and I started you know, pointing out like, look, here's what an ounce and an eighth of seven and a halves or sixes looks like. Here's what three quarters or seven eighths ounce of eights and eight, eight and a halves look like. And I can just look out the audience and see people's eyes kind of, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. That, that's, yeah, there, there's a lot of there there. You know, you, I would encourage anybody to look at that. And yeah, I think, I think it would be great if manufacturers would do that. And you start to, again, it gets, it gets kind of esoteric, but especially when you're reloading or you're fine tuning a load, you know, I specifically had a load I was working on and I wasn't really happy how it was patterning with, with a given shot size. I was, I was patterning some eights out of kind of a specialty load and it, it wasn't patterning well at the little bit further distances. And, And I was trying to maximize my effective range. Right. So I just, I maintained that pellet size. And I jumped up an eighth of an ounce of weight in the payload, and it just at at 30 and 35 yards, it turned a very marginal unethical pattern into one that at 35 35 yards was just incredible was was perfectly uh, acceptable, hmm. and it was just just slightly increasing the payload, just slightly increase that density to where all of a sudden you know. And when I'm doing a pattern like that, I've got these little discs of varying shapes. And, you know, you've got your pattern either on the floor or up on the board and you move this disc around and you just count the number of places in that pattern where that little disc will fit. Sure. You know, and for grouse and woodcock, it's a three inch or two and a half or three inch disc. For pheasants, it's, you know, larger. You can kind of choose, yeah. you know, whatever size disc you want for whatever size bird you're going for. Anyway, so that just an example where, you know, increasing that pellet count just a little bit made a pretty marked distance at, you know, for 10 yards more effectiveness. Yeah. A lot, a lot of subtleties and nuances you would see when you start doing as much patterning as, as you have, I would imagine. Since we kind of opened up that pellet count box, I just want to at least ask this one thing. Obviously we talked about when you, you know, you go down in shot size, or I should say up in shot size in the number. So you've got smaller pellets so you can put more of them in. The energy that you're putting on the target is impacted by the weight of the pellet and the velocity that you send it at. And so like, what are those lower limits? You know, when you went, like how small of a shot size is too small in that you're losing too much energy to be lethal, even though we might have a ton of pattern density, you know, what parameters are you considering for going too small a pellet? I think, I, I mean, again, that that's going to be somewhat of a personal preference thing, yeah. but I've found, again, for especially for grouse, woodcock, and quail, eight and a halves inside of 30 yards are plenty. And, you know, again, it's it's how far do you how far do you need to penetrate mm-hmm. a grouse or a woodcock to get to a lethal area? You know, not very far. Interestingly, too, and this you know this may be a little morbid, but it's but it's important to talk about because. Again, our, our overarching goal is to be as, as humane and as effective as possible. Yep. You know, we, we, we want that bird to die as quickly as possible. So if you're, if you're increasing the pellet count, you're increasing the chance 
you know, it's basically like you got more lottery tickets in the random game of where those pellets end up Mm -hmm. and you're going to have more chances of, you know, hitting a nerve center or, you know, getting into the heart, getting into the lungs, you know, hitting a wing bone that's got an artery running next to it and, you know, effectively bringing that down personally. Cause I, mean, I don't know about you, but it, I mean, if I know I've, I've hit a bird and my dog doesn't recover it, that's just about the worst feeling in oh, the yeah. world. You know? yep. So, so yeah. It, it, and again, it, it, your pellet size is really going to depend a lot on the query you're seeking. And I, again, I'd say for grouse woodcock eights, eight and a halves, um, if I jump up to like late season pheasant, sharp tail, prairie chicken size, you know, sixes, I, I don't really shoot anything above sixes. I actually have done some experimenting last year with um, six and a half shots, some nickel plate at six and a half shot. And I really like what that does because that, you know, out of the right choke, that really it maintains just enough energy to be super effective and it really fills in a pattern a little better than a straight six. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the way I think about it too. I mean, the, the goal is again, clean, efficient kill. It's not to see like how few pellets we could get away with or, you know, like how much, how little we can scrape by. I mean, I want to, and obviously, you know, we're, we're shooting different guns and we're having fun with that side of things, but we still want to maintain as much effective killing power or, or killing efficiency, I should say, in that we can in the guns that we're using. So glad you mentioned that. A couple quick ones here. Going back to the long barrel thing, have you ever, have you ever heard anything about longer barrels and whether or not you've heard about it, but like, is there anything of significance here? Longer barrels helping to perhaps reduce felt recoil? I don't know. I mean, here's the thing about recoil. It goes back to the one half MV squared concept. You know, if, if you're doing the equation, one half MV squared equals one half MV squared, a certain amount of shot going out the barrel at a certain velocity is a certain amount of recoil. Yeah. And that's counter affected by us, by how much the gun weighs. Now felt recoil, what you're talking about there really is the duration in which the amount of time in which that recoil is absorbed right Mm -hmm. so so that's why things like porting or mercury mercury recoil reducers work is because it slows down the impulse of that rearward motion Mm. so perhaps longer barrels could add a little bit more weight maybe longer barrels if a gun is a little bit and i'm just kind of theorizing here because i mean i don't know that i've ever notice the difference between felt recoil and yep. a 26 or a 30 inch gun but i'm just kind of you know spitballing as far as what could have the effect maybe you wouldn't have as much muzzle flip yep and that the muzzle flip i wanted to i wanted to ask you about that which as far as i understand that kind of only applies to side by sides is that correct well it, you know when i go through this and, and that's why there's a little bit difference between your side you know if, if i do a gun fitting with an over, with a side by side, my tri gun's a side by side gun, and I'm and somebody's going to order an over and under. There's there's differences in the in the drop dimensions because because of the way the barrels are oriented lower in the frame, and on a on a side by side side by sides have what we refer to as down flip. So the barrels actually come back and ever so slightly down before they come up. Mm. So with identical dimensions, an over and under is going to shoot lower. Or excuse me, I said that backwards. A, a side-by-side is going to shoot lower 
than an over and under. Hmm. Over and under guns, if, if you just look at, and it's not just how they're oriented in the frame per se, it's also how they're oriented in relation to your shoulder. Over and under barrels tend to be high, are, are higher. So over and under barrels come straight. Hmm. They, they typically will start up right away again. So when doing fittings, I have to take that into account. But yeah, it's it's one of those things you, you don't really ever notice it when you're shooting because it happens so quick. But there, but there is a definite difference in the recoil profile of over and unders versus side by sides. And then one, one last thing here that I, I was something I thought about, like, and I think you kind of answered it here in some of your recent responses. But just to clarify, like, if you take the same, the same one ounce, let's just say one ounce load at the same velocity, and shoot it out of a twelve gauge that weighs six pounds and then you shoot it out of a 16 gauge that weighs six pounds. So everything is the same other than the gauge would recoil in theory be any different because of the smaller bore of the 16 gauge or would anything, would anything come into play there that would alter that? You, you could say technically the 16 would recoil harder because the pre the pressure would have to be a little higher right because your bore diameter is is smaller now that gets real esoteric because mm -hmm. of all of the different burn rates and volumes of powders i i think on a you know on a usable everyday basis that would be pretty you know especially if you're shooting guns that weigh exactly the same i think it would you probably wouldn't notice it in, in a field situation yeah yeah you know if you had a, if you had a six and a half pound 12 gauge and a six and a half pound 16 and they're both shooting an ounce at 1200. I, I really don't think you'd notice it really. Yeah. Got it. All right, man. Well, we could, we could definitely go on, but I think we'll, uh, that's enough for, for me to chew on. I gotta, I gotta take this back <laughs> to the, take to the back to the drawing board and re-listen. And I guess, uh, the biggest takeaway, which has been a takeaway on this show before is pattern your shotguns, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Pattern and just, and just know that, you know, it, for, for ethical reasons, it's important to do, and it's it's also a lot of fun and just interesting. Yeah, you know, and and I don't know, I love bird hunting and and find shotguns, and it's just one more way to spend time with them and and kind of enjoy and understand more of what you're doing. So, you got that right. Well, we are going to. I will have mentioned this in the in the introduction, but we are Upland Gun Company is going to offer up a gun fitting to the listeners of the Birdshot Podcast. We're going to do this very similar to how we did it with Lars Jacob, where I will just make this available to anybody willing to travel to go see Dell at his shop and do a gun fitting with him there uh, near Traverse City. So, Dell, why don't you um, let everybody know where where that is, how, how they could contact you, and, and what that gun fitting would involve. So, you know, I'm I'm – I'm out in the country, but I'm about 15 minutes west of Traverse City. And if, if you want to know where Traverse City is, if you do the thing where you look at the lower peninsula of Michigan, like you're looking at your... Which hand you know, am I supposed to use? The right hand? The the right hand. Yeah, okay. So the, the thumb is the thumb. And you think <laughs> about the, the, the tip of your middle finger being the Mackinac Bridge. And you could think of like Grand Rapids roughly being in the center of your palm. I am basically at the tip of your pinky there's there's a got it a, a, a big peninsula two little bays that form a little peninsula so yeah it's grand traverse county so i'm like i said i'm 15 minutes away from traverse city um and as far as the as far as the gun fitting goes it's a, it's a classic british style 15 yard tri-gun gun fitting um it starts out in the shop 
we go over some basics of some very fundamental aspects of stance and gun mount. We kind of do what I refer to as the dry fitting. So we, you know, I'll, I'll measure up length of pull, get the length of pull roughly set, get the cast and drop roughly set. There will obviously be an eye dominance uh, test thrown in there to make sure we don't have any anomalies there. Then we move down to the patterning plate. My patterning plate is about 25 yards out the back of my shop. Um, I've got a nice little shooting shed that has a covered awning so we can do it in, in most weather conditions. And then we go through and do uh, what I call we shoot series of shots, and that'll be anywhere from two to four shots at a given uh, point on the plate. I'll make a judgment about where those shots are placed on the patterning board, and I will then alter the uh, trigun stock for cast and drop and length of pull and pitch. And you'll shoot another series of two to four shots, and we will just you know, slowly make alterations to the gun shot, the, the gun stock dimensions until we're shooting where we want the point of aim to be. And that's, that can be, you know, it depends. I tell people, you know, if I do a really good job at the dry fit and we get lucky, that might be one or two series. Yeah. Uh, you've been around for a few of them, Nick, where we were out there for a long time, yep. depending on what goes on. So, um, but yeah. And then, and then what you really end up with after that is a, is a, what I call my, uh, stock fitting worksheet and that's just a it's a series of nine dimensions that equal a three-dimensional representation of what a gun stock should be or what your ideal gun stock should be and you know you can use that to order a custom gun you can use that to have guns you have altered and you can also use that really importantly if you're looking at buying a used gun yep you 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 have a good idea then going in hey I know this gun costs this much, and if I want it to fit me, I'm going to have to spend this much to get the ideal dimensions. Yep, kind of helps you with your. And as as I've learned, you can you can rule out certain guns too. You know, I've I know that I need a certain stock height, and if I see a gun that there there will be some dimensions on a gun that you just can't reach or you can't you can't hit, and so it gives you a good framework as far as looking at any other gun and knowing how close or how far away it is to potentially being a being a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. All right, Dell. Well, thank you for that. I will, we'll, we'll do a drawing on that. We'll probably run it for the month of June and I'll, I'll pull it at the end in early July and we'll draw a winner and I'll keep folks updated on that. So thank you. Thank you for that, Dell. And you are, we didn't mention at the beginning of the show, you've been on the show a bunch of times, but you are a very talented gunsmith, stock maker. You're always doing work on, you work on a lot of vintage guns, but, but lots of guns, obviously. So, so how could folks reach out to you, get in touch with you if, if they had gunsmithing needs? Uh, yeah, uh, you could get, get to me through Instagram and Facebook. It's uh, DC Whitman Custom Gunsmithing on Facebook and um, at Upland. It's, it's Upland underscore gunsmith on Instagram. And my email is D uh, Whitman with an H. So D W H I T M A N at CenturyTel.net. So C E N T U R Y T E L.net. Excellent. I will link all those up. Dell, thank you for taking the time to join me and the listeners on Birdshot Podcast. As always, I appreciate it, man. I will, at the latest, I'll see you again at Pine Ridge in August. Looking forward to that. But hope you have a great summer and We'll keep in touch, I'm sure. So thanks for the time today, buddy. You bet. I enjoyed it. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.